The following audio presentation is from Parkwood Baptist Church. The purpose of Parkwood Baptist Church is to glorify God by laboring together for the growth of all believers while going with the gospel to all peoples. More information about Parkwood Baptist Church is available at parkwoodonline.org. That's parkwoodonline.org. Those of you who are new to Parkwood, here's what you need to understand how I approach preaching. I start in a book of a Bible somewhere and I preach through it. Normally it's a, it's a verse by verse or a chapter by chapter uh, way approach. We're working through the Psalms and instead of dealing with each verse, you could preach literally five or six sermons on each Psalm. I'm doing one a week. So this week we come to Psalm 6. The title of the message is A Cry of Repentance. The number one criticism that I have received over the years uh, for preaching, and I'm not looking for any affirmation from you, I'm just stating the facts. Number one reason I get letters is for quote, being negative. Uh, and, and really where it comes from is when I preach sermons like today, where I'm trying to be faithful to the text and preach what the text actually says and confronts us. So lest you think I'm just being negative today, can, can I just remind you that again on Friday, a young man went into a high school and murdered his fellow students and teachers. Can I just remind you, those of you who think that the only thing that's ever supposed to emanate from the church is something, quote, positive. That we live in a broken world. It is deeply broken. And, and what we need to understand is it's not just the brokenness that we're experiencing with each other, that there's something broken in all of us and that, that God has spoken to us about it. Thank God. I, 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 I'll make this argument to you today and I hope it becomes clear at the end. Repentance is good news that God would call us to and lead us to repentance is good news. So this is one of seven of the Psalms of repentance that you'll find in the 150 Psalms. It's the first one that occurs. So Psalm chapter six, I invite you to stand. To the choir master with stringed instruments, according to the Sheminith, a Psalm of David. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. My soul is also greatly troubled, but you, O Lord, how long? Turn, O Lord, deliver me. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. For in death there is no remembrance of you. In Sheol, who will give you praise? I'm weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with weeping. My eye wastes away because of grief. My, it grows weak because of all my foes. Depart from me, all you workers of evil, for the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. They shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. Let's pray. Lord, we would ask with David, turn, O Lord, Deliver our lives for the sake of your steadfast love. May we both see and hear 
and receive your great mercy this day. Speak to us now, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. As I said, this is one of the seven Psalms of repentance. It is for the director of music or the choir master. That means the intention of this song is to be used in public worship, very similar to what was just sung a few moments ago. The message of this song to us and to one another as it is to be preached and sung is our need for repentance. Now, I need to help you and to help my own mind and heart get on the page of understanding here what we're talking about. I'm just gonna ask some questions. These are rhetorical, don't answer them out loud. You might be wrong. Is sin simply failure? Is my awareness of sin and my response simply to try harder and to do better? This appears to be the message of modern Christianity. It appears to be what many preachers are trying to get at. It certainly appears to be what people are hearing. I don't know how many times I've had this conversation with people that begins this way. I just need to do better, Pastor. Or I just need to try harder. It's as if God is regularly handing out report cards. And some of us are getting D's and F's. And our response to the D or the F is, I just need to try harder. Let me be clear with you. That is not repentance. It is a delusional self-confidence. It is the belief that you can do better. That you can try harder. That you can get God to approve of you. So let me just submit from the beginning as I launch into this message. The reason we don't hear talk of repentance is modern Americans, even many modern evangelicals, don't believe repentance is necessary. All we need to do is try harder. Now this psalm is deeply emotional. At the same time though, it's clearly stated. So what I'm saying is, even though there's deep emotion as David writes, he's not irrational. He, he states his case very clearly. There's an argument here. So before we get into the text, I, I just want us to consider this quote. It may help us to remember that these words were written not by some unsuccessful 
or person naturally inclined to depression. This was written by King David. If ever there was a strong or successful person, it was him. The first thing we see is desperation. Then we're gonna see declaration, but first we gotta work through the desperation. You never get to declaration until you work through desperation. The desperation is because of the awareness of the Lord's displeasure and discipline. Oh Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. So there's gotta be a question here that I've gotta help myself and you. We gotta work through this because I'm not sure what we're hearing or what we're preaching here. So we gotta ask this question, does the Lord rebuke sin? The answer is yes, he does. Does the Lord discipline sin? Yes, he does. So it's not David's request. David's not saying, God, please don't rebuke me or please don't discipline me. Notice what he's saying. Don't rebuke me in your anger. Don't discipline me in your wrath. Psalm 51 verse three. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words. So here's what David is saying. God, you're completely justified to rebuke me because my sin is against you. And you are blameless in your judgment because I have done what is evil in your sight. Here's what I must realize, what we all must realize is that our sin is against a holy God and he could justifiably respond in anger and wrath because he is holy and sin cannot exist in his presence. God cannot ignore sin. Now let me say it this way. He will not ignore sin. We deserve wrath, but by his grace, we have received what only Christ can supply, and that is mercy. So the second thing we see is the appeal for the Lord's mercy. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. David's appeal to mercy is tied to his awareness of bodily distress. He says he's languishing, he's lacking strength. I left some plants in my garage last week when it got up to a 95, I came home from work and they were laid over. I watered them, they stood back up in a day or two, but had I not watered them, they'd have died that night. The image is we're laid over, we're, we're about to faint. Then he says, my bones are troubled. Literally in the Hebrew, it means deeply frightened. He's frightened over the consequences of sin. Not just the consequences he's gonna face, but he's frightened over the consequences that are coming in on him. So there's a, there's a double meaning going on in this Psalm. Something is happening outside with people around David pressing on him because of what he has done. Then he says in verse three, my soul also is greatly troubled, but you, O Lord, how long? So here's what David's saying. It appears that the anguish that he is under has no end in sight. So it leads him to ask this question, how long? What's, what's he saying? He's saying, God, how long are you going to remain silent here? How long are you going to leave me in darkness? I don't know if you've ever been here. I think in a very real sense, and, and this is one of the things that concerns me about us as Christians, it's almost like we're ignoring what happened Friday. We're just pretending it didn't happen. And then if it happens in Gastonia, we're all going to go, oh, 
can't believe it happened in Gastonia. Listen to me, or you're not figuring out this is happening everywhere. Everywhere. We should be asking this question How long, O oh Lord? How long? John Piper, in his book, When the Darkness Will Not End, said, We draw no deadlines for God. He hastens or delays as he sees fit. His timing is all loving toward his children. Oh, that we might learn to be patient in the hour of darkness. I don't mean that we make peace with the darkness. We fight for joy, but we fight as those who are saved by grace and held by Christ. So here's what David's saying here. In his sin... He remains in misery because God is absent. And what he needs is for the Lord to return and to deliver him. So he says in verse four, turn, O Lord. When you compare that with the, the priestly prayer in Numbers, the Lord be gracious toward us. May he lift up his countenance to you. May he turn his face to you. He's asking for God's grace. God, turn to me. Deliver me. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. Now notice this. This is crucial. If you don't get this part, you, 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 you turn Christianity on its head and you make it into something else. David does not say, God, I've really tried hard for you. I've done my best and I don't understand. God, God haven't you seen everything I've done? But you know, I'm, I'm a good person. His request is not based off of his character. The request to deliver him is based on the character of God. That God's steadfast love, that is the sake of his appeal. So let me just be clear. There is nothing in me that moves God toward me. Nothing. God moves toward me or you solely because of his mercy and his steadfast love. I don't know why I'm chuckling. It's really sad. <laughs> you know, we've so bought this thing of we just need a positive message. None of us have self-confidence. Really? Like nobody in this culture has self-confidence? Are, are you serious? This is the most self-confident age we've ever lived in. But here's what we're all trying to deal with. We're broken inside. So the way we're coming to God as if God is a therapist not that he's holy. And we're coming to God and insisting that he do something on whose terms? Ours. Repentance says, God, it's always on your terms, not mine. And it is according to your unfailing love. His last argument here, verse five. For there is no remembrance of you in Sheol who will give you praise. 
So what he's saying is, I was made to praise God. That's why it says we fall short of the glory of God in our sin. We were made to praise God. And the only way that we're ever gonna praise God is to receive his mercy. If we don't receive God's mercy, then there'll be no praise of him in hell. There'll be no remembrance of him in hell. But Nehemiah 9.31 says this, nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end of them or forsake them. Thank God for that. You did not make an end of them or forsake them. Why? For you are a gracious and merciful God. So we continue back to the Psalm. The acknowledgement of weariness. I'm weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. My eye wastes away because of grief. It grows weak because of all my my foes. Now, here's what I thought this week as I'm reading this. This is the man who slayed a bear and a lion as basically a child. Then as a teenager, killed a nine foot giant with a slingshot. He's now the king and he's languishing in his bed of tears. Is there any hope for him? Is there any hope for us if we come to this point? Let's turn to the gospel. Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12. Jesus here is making a declaration about himself as he's speaking to the crowds. He draws from multiple passages from Isaiah to explain who he is. And as he explains who he is, he is explaining what he has come to do for sinful human beings. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. See, God's completely pleased with Christ because he's sinless. I will put my spirit upon him and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory and in his name the, in his name the Gentiles will hope. Let's start there at the end. He will bring justice to victory. Justice was brought to victory on the cross as God satisfied his wrath in Christ and victory came in the resurrection as Christ rose from the grave. Now, why did Christ give himself for us and rise from the grave? So that we who are sinners, though we are bruised, though we are smoldering like a wick that's about to blow out, to understand this, God's not gonna come along and break us the rest of the way off. He's not gonna snuff us out. When we cry to him in repentance, he receives us. Why? Because Jesus Christ fully identified with the anguish of every one of our souls. Our comfort lies in the ultimate victory achieved by Jesus Christ. We receive the benefits of his grace and his love and we are brought in the presence of God by the spirit and his promises are now ours in Christ. Now, back to Psalm 6. Watch what happens. When you come to the Lord in repentance, watch now how the psalm turns to declaration. The Lord hears the broken. Depart from me, all you workers of evil, for the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. 
The Lord hears the cry of the repentant. We should expect him to hear our cry. It's not so much the, the physical nature or the evidence of tears. It's the brokenness of our heart. Because Psalm 51, 17 says, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not, anybody know the next word? Despise. Now let's, let's reverse the logic and go backwards. What will God despise? Here's what God will despise. You got to get your mind around this. I need to do better. I need to try harder. Because when you say that, what are you saying about yourself? You're saying, I can. I can do better. I can try harder. I, I can accomplish this. This speech has been made last week at college graduations and it'll be made for the next two weeks. Just remember this, you can do anything. <laughs> that is not the message of the Bible. You say, what well, says I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me? You know what that means? In context, it means you can suffer for Jesus. That's what it means. It means you can endure difficulty for the sake of Christ. So put it in context the next time you say it. You can do only through Christ. But a broken and a contrite heart, when we come to the Lord in brokenness and we cry out to him, he will not despise us because the Lord accepts the cry of repentance. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. So it begs this question, have you cried to the Lord in repentance? Have you cried out to him in repentance? Now, here's, we've changed the narrative. We, we've, we've come up with new language. We kind of drew from the Bible a little bit with it, but we've come up with new language to define what it means to be a Christian. That all you gotta do if you wanna become a Christian is to ask Jesus into your heart. So I have a question for that. If that's all you need to do is to ask Jesus into your heart, where's repentance in that statement? Where is it? Where is the explanation of sin? Where's the explanation of the need of sin? And even saying, you need to ask Jesus in your heart, are we saying something confidently about what a person can accomplish there? Listen to me, I believe this. We have become functional Hindus in this culture. You say, what do you mean? Hindus worship thousands of gods. And if you go to them and you preach that form of Christianity where you say, you need to ask Jesus in your heart, they all will. Thousands, whoop, they'll come forward. You know why? Because they just think they're adding Jesus to one more God they already have. And I believe that's what's happening in many Americans who are quote, asking Jesus in their heart. They're just improving themselves. Jesus did not die for self-improvement. Jesus died to save you. He died to radically transform you, that which is dead to life. And all who cry to him in repentance will be saved. Listen, this is Psalm 66. If you want to turn over there, Psalm 66, verse 18. 
If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. But truly God has listened. He has attended to the voice of my prayer. Blessed be God, because he has not rejected my prayer or removed his steadfast love from me. Now, hang with me here. Track with me. I'm, I'm, if you've never been in church, glad you don't have all the garbage I'm talking about right now. Okay? I'm grateful for you. But those of you who've been around Baptist land for a while, let's, let's, let's wake up here for a minute. Have you heard this? You need to ask Jesus in your heart and later you need to make him. Now, wait a minute. Jesus said this. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and... Here's what we're saying, folks. Let me just get up under the hood and lift it up and say what we're saying. You can ask Jesus in your heart and harbor your little sin over here and do what you want to do. Just get you some fire insurance from hell. And later on, if you want to, you can, you can make him Lord. By the way, you don't make somebody Lord who is Lord. Jesus is Lord. And repentance is acknowledging he's Lord and you're not. That you're the sinner and he's the Savior. We cannot cherish sin in our hearts and believe that God has listened to us. But when we come to him in repentance, he attends to the voice of our prayer. He will not reject it. He will extend his steadfast love. So this week we're talking about evangelism and growth groups. Let me just make a little appeal to you here. If you are not in your presentation of the gospel presenting the need for a person to receive the gospel, if you are not explaining sin and the consequences of sin, you're not preaching the gospel. You're not proclaiming the gospel. Because 2 Corinthians 7.10 says, godly grief produces repentance, and don't miss this, leading to salvation. So let me just hit the pause button here again. This is free. Parents, when you get upset with us as pastors, when we're interacting with your children, if they can't explain repentance to us, we're not baptizing them. Because there's not a junior version of salvation. There's only one. And that's an awareness of sin and a need for a savior. And by the way, adult, if you can't communicate to us repentance and your need for a savior, we're not baptizing you. We're not going to affirm something that may not be true. And we're not God, but we want to hear the clarity of the language. Godly grief produces repentance leading to salvation. So I'm going to make a bold and emphatic statement. If you've never been grieved over your sin and a need for a savior, I don't care what you call yourself, you're not a Christian. And I'm gonna go further. If you're not living in regular attitude of repentance, you're not a Christian. Because here's what we as believers are distinctly aware of. We're aware of our ongoing struggle with sin and our ongoing need of the savior who is Christ the Lord. I'm not talking about we're getting resaved. I'm talking about we never lose sight of our need of Christ. Now, 
For those of you who would puff up your chest in this room and get angry at what I'm saying, let me just be clear with you is that this Psalm ends for me kind of abruptly and different, but I understand it. Here's the last declaration. The Lord will have his way. David says, all my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. They shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. Now, first thing I want you to see is that he uses the same language about ashamed and greatly troubled that he used about himself as he was talking through repentance. So here David is saying, it's not that we pray against our enemies, we pray for them, that God would have mercy on them, that he would bring them to the, 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 the way of salvation unto repentance. However, if a non-believer will not turn to the Lord in repentance, the Lord will have his way. You probably don't remember this dude, but in high school, you probably had to read a poem or used to, you have to, I don't know, everything's changed now, by Lord Byron. Lord Byron was an absolute, utter pagan. He was an arrogant pagan. He was on his deathbed and he was dying and the people were gathered in a room and this is recorded as his last words. This is frightening. He looked up at the people in the room and said, Obviously, there were probably some believers in the room. He said, shall I cry for mercy? He paused. And then he said, come, come. No weakness. I will be a man to the end. Now, he boldly said what I see regularly. an attitude that says Christianity is for weak people, to which I say, amen. You hit the nail on the head. It's you strong people that are gonna face the Lord. So turn with me to Luke chapter 13. Luke chapter 13, verse 22. Jesus went through the towns and the villages teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And he said to them, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. Okay, now what does that mean? All right, John 14, six, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except. All right, you wanna tick off 21st century America tweet John 14, 16 this afternoon, go on Facebook and write, there's only one way to heaven, there's only one way to God, and that is through Jesus. Write out John 14, 6 and see what you get. This is what Jesus is saying here. There's only one way. There's only one. Now, when the master of the house is risen and shut the door and you begin to stand outside and the knock at the door saying, Lord, open to us. Then he will answer them. I do not know where you come from. Then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence and taught in your, in your, in our, you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets of the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. Now, here's what this means. It means those who do not get into heaven are going to be aware there is one. That's a stunning thought.
So let's put this in the 21st century. There are gonna be people who are gonna go, hey God, I went to church every Sunday. I was, I was doing my best. I was trying to do better. Trying to improve things. Signed up, I volunteered. Helped out. Worked in kids. Taught a growth group. For those who have never acknowledged their sin and repented of their sin and turned to Christ as their only savior, he will say to them, I do not know who you are. Here's the good news. Don't miss this. It doesn't end there. And people will come from the east and the west and the north and the south and recline at the table of the kingdom of God. And behold, some who are last will be first and some who are first will be last. You know who's coming to the table? The broken people. All those who show up, oh Lord, I'll take my seat. Aren't you proud of me? <clears throat> Let me press back here a couple of months ago. Did Billy Graham get into heaven better than you? Well, how you answer that question is crucial to what you understand about salvation. The answer is no way. He was saved by faith through grace and that not of himself because no one will boast in the presence of God. No one. So brothers and sisters, I ask you this question. Has the cry of repentance resulted in rejoicing in my heart and life. So what do you mean here? Repentance is not remorse. Remorse is when you're sad that you've done something wrong. It's, it's when you're doing something as a kid and your parent walks in on you doing it. You say, oh, I didn't mean to. I didn't mean to. That's the dumbest thing we've ever said. <laughs> yes, I did. I meant to. And I deserve whatever's about to come. That's what we ought to say. That's remorse. Repentance is I did it. I was wrong. And I desperately need your grace. Save me, oh God. And when we turn from our sin to the Lord, he changes our heart. He removes the heart of stone and gives us the heart of flesh. When God gives us a new heart, then our life changes and our lips, what comes out of our mouth changes. Psalm 40 describes it this way. I waited patiently to the Lord. He inclined to me and he heard my cry. He drew me from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog and he set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God and many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. So I had heard things at church and I had heard some religious things. I had heard some truth about needing to be saved. But I can tell you this, the day I confessed my sin and turned from my sin and trusted in Christ alone to save me, something radical happened to me. And every person who has come face to face with their sin and their need for a savior who in repentance has cried out to Christ for salvation, something radical has happened to them. 
and what the Bible is teaching, there will be evidence of that. That your feet are set on a rock and a new song is put into your mouth. Mephibosheth, one of Saul's, of the house of Saul, relation to Saul. He's the only one that survived to go into David's kingdom. And it says this about Mephibosheth. He was crippled in both feet and he ate at the king's table. My ongoing battle with sin is not over. God radically changed me and he put a new song in me, but my battle with sin is not over. Yours isn't either. My battle with sin reminds me I'm crippled in both my feet. But God, by his grace, reminds me that I eat at the Lord's table. That is by his grace alone. Now don't start putting your stuff up. I want you to hear me out. We're about to sing to each other. Come you sinners, weak and wounded. It's who we are. We come as sinners in need of grace. We, we, we are broken people. And there's gonna be a line in there that says this. If you wait until you're better, you will never come at all. Never. The chorus says, I will arise and go to Jesus. He will embrace me as his own. That's all of grace. That humbles me every time I think of it. So let us remind each other with the gospel. Let us cry out and call to God and call out to those among us who are trusting in themselves for salvation that today they will turn to Christ, that they will be radically saved. In a few minutes when we celebrate the, the, the miracle of salvation through the evidence of the water baptism, let us celebrate that God has saved another and that for his sake and for his glory. Let's pray. Father, lead us now, lead us. Save those who are outside of the kingdom and save God for your glory. I pray for those who have called on the name of the Lord for many years that, that we would be humbled yet again today, that we would sing this song to each other, that it is all of your grace. Pour it forth on us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Thanks for listening to this audio presentation from Parkwood Baptist Church, located in Gastonia, North Carolina. Please feel free to share this message with others. For more information about Parkwood Baptist Church, visit parkwoodonline.org. That's parkwoodonline.org.